The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The title of my message for you tonight is How to Have Eternal Life. And can you think of a more important topic or subject for us to be considering together than this one. How do I have eternal life? Where do you find it? Where does it come from? We're going to learn the answer to that question as we dive into John 17. But it begins here, and and just to set the the backdrop, backdrop or the context, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they've almost arrived there, but just before they cross over the brook Kidron, Jesus stops, and he lifts his eyes, and he begins to pray. Now, we think of the Lord's Prayer as being that prayer where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, and where he taught them, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And, and that's what we know of when we, when we reference the Lord's Prayer. But really, that might better be termed the disciples' prayer. After all, that's the prayer that Jesus handed those guys when they came to them and they said, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus gave them this model prayer. But what we have here in John 17 is truly the Lord's prayer. And in it, Jesus allows us this incredible privilege of eavesdropping on this private conversation between Jesus and his Father. And in doing so, we get a window into the heart of heaven itself. We're on holy ground here in John 17. And as we get started, I think it's worth pointing out that why would Jesus pray at all? I mean, that's telling, isn't it? After all, if you're God, do you really need to pray? Oftentimes we pray to discern the will of God and so on and so forth. But Jesus is God. So why did he pray? And the answer is he prayed because even though he was God, he lived on earth as a man. And as a man, Jesus lived in total dependence on his heavenly father. And do you want to know what a life of total dependence looks like? It looks like a life of continual prayer. Listen to me, friends. If you want to live in dependence on God, then you will become a man or a woman who is devoted to prayer. And that's exactly what we find with Jesus. A cursory reading or examination of the Gospels will reveal that Jesus had a robust prayer life. He prayed often. He prayed early in the morning. He prayed late at night. He prayed before making big decisions. He prayed when his heart was heavy. And he even prayed when he hung on the cross. You see, Jesus' life was filled with prayer to the point where the disciples literally came up and they said, hey, we've discerned that there is this connection between the power you walk in and the power you flow in and the time that you spend in private prayer. So teach us to pray. It's the only thing they ever asked Jesus to teach them how to do. They didn't say, teach us how to do that water into wine thing. They didn't say, teach us how to multiply fish and loaves. No, they said, teach us how to to pray because they rightly discerned a connection point between the power he walked in and the time he spent in private prayer. And and so we have all these prayers of Jesus. And yet, while we read about him praying often, for the most part, what we read of those prayers is scant. 
And we are not given the full record of what he prayed with one glaring exception. Here in John 17, we have not only the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, but we have the longest recorded prayer in the entire New Testament. And so in reading it and studying it, there's much that we can learn and glean and apply to develop our own prayer lives. Because, hey, how many of you by a show of hands could use a a healthier prayer life? Come on, let's get those hands up. We need to learn how to pray. And so by spending time in John 17, we're getting a master class a PhD in the subject of prayer. And what we're going to see is this prayer moves in three parts. In the first part, Jesus prays for himself. In the second part of the prayer, the second movement, if you will, Jesus begins to pray for his disciples, those 11 guys that were with him walking to the garden. And then in the third and final part of the prayer, Jesus turns his attention to all those who would come to believe on him through their testimony. You know who he's praying for there? Us. This is a prayer in which Jesus prays for you and for me. And over the next couple of weeks, as we dive into each one of these sections, we're going to see what the Lord wants to, to teach us, but we're also going to see what Jesus prays for us. So let's go ahead and begin reading there in John 17. Begin with me in verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've given as a title for this, this section, a glorious prayer. And the word glory shows up all over the place, and we'll talk about that. But notice with me as we get started that he begins the prayer, and really he sets the tone for the whole prayer by addressing his prayer to his Father. Who you pray to matters. Did you know that? And where you direct your prayers will influence where your prayers go. And so Jesus teaches us here, as his disciples, like him, we're to pray to our Father. Now, the word that he uses in the Aramaic, it's Abba, Abba. And it's a word who's most closely associated with our English word, Dada, or Daddy. Jesus is praying here to his heavenly Daddy. It's a word, as you can imagine, of intense emotion and intimacy. And you need to know that's who God is. He's not some cold, distant deity who is uninterested and and closed off and indifferent to your needs and cares and concerns. He's a loving father who invites you onto his lap to pour out your heart, to hear his heart. And his ear is tuned to the voice of his kids, just like those of you who are dads, those of you who are parents in this room. You know the sound of your kid's voice. And similarly, Your heavenly father, he knows the sound of your voice. And when you cry out to him, he inclines his ear. He reaches down from heaven and he gets involved. Now, when you know that, 
It'll change the way you pray. I promise you that. And so he, he addresses his prayer to his father. And then he says, the hour has come. And again, we find another reference in John's gospel to this mysterious hour that keeps popping up over and over again. It shows up throughout John's gospel where he talks about, my hour has not yet come. So what hour is Jesus talking about? And we know by this point what he's, exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the hour of his death. <clears throat> As one author I was reading put it, the alarm on heaven's clock has sounded. The day and hour decreed in eternity past has come. The predetermined plan of God has reached its apex and the hour of redemption has arrived. This is the climactic hour to which all of human history has been building up to. It's been foreshadowing this and anticipating this and in marching towards this hour. And Jesus knows what lies before him. He's under no illusions what awaits him. And we can't even, for our part, begin to comprehend the tremendous weight, the crushing that his soul was enduring as he imagined the sin of the world being placed on his shoulders. As he anticipated that moment when for the first time in all of history, not just human history, but the history of forever, all of eternity, the father would turn his back on his son and reject his son in order that he might receive us. Jesus knows that that hour has come. For 33 years, he's been building up to this moment. And yet, strikingly, we don't see him complaining here or asking God to remove this hour of trial. He didn't say the hour has come, so get me out of here. No, look what he says. He says the hour has come, so glorify your son that he may glorify you. You know, there's something about prayers that you pray in moments of crisis. You tend to just do away with all pretense, and you get down to the nitty-gritty. They tend to be raw, real, and honest, we get transparent in those moments that are stressful. And so what was uppermost in Jesus' thoughts and mind in the moments just before his own death and crucifixion? Glory. Glory is the dominant theme of this part of Jesus' prayer. The first part, the word appears five times in five verses. And specifically, he asks the Father, to glorify him. He says, glorify me. I think it's interesting that he would begin his prayer by asking the Father to do something for him. He, he begins by praying for himself. And, and maybe that hits your ear funny. I mean, is it wrong to pray for yourself? I mean, is it? Maybe you would think the spiritual answer would be, you shouldn't pray for yourself. You know, you should be focused on others. <clears throat> And I'll say that there is an aspect of, of praying for yourself that can become uh, truly sinful. And, and James warns us against praying self-absorbed or selfish prayers, things that we can just consume on ourselves. He says, don't expect God to answer those prayers. But that doesn't mean that all prayers for yourself are sinful. In fact, Jesus models here that it's right and good 
clearly to pray for yourself. In fact, think back with me to the disciples' pray that, prayer that I mentioned earlier. As part of that prayer that Jesus gave as a model prayer for all of us, part of that prayer entails this part, and give us this day our daily bread. In other words, God knows that you have needs, and he expects and wants and invites you to bring those needs before him. And so Jesus models that. It's not wrong to pray for yourself. But there's also something else going on here that I want you to notice. When you dig a little deeper, you'll find that even though Jesus is is asking God to glorify him, it's not a selfish prayer because look at the whole reason that he wants God to glorify him. So that I might turn around and glorify you. You see, the real thrust of this request was that Jesus wanted to glorify his father. And he knew that the Father would be most glorified in him through his own death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus himself said it in John 3, when I be lifted up, he was speaking there of the cross, he said, I will draw all men to myself, and God would get much glory through all the people who would come to a saving faith in him through the atoning work of Jesus. So this, this, friends, was the driving passion of Jesus' life. It was his fuel. His motivation was to glorify his heavenly Father, and he sought to do that in every aspect of his life. And of course, the the ultimate expression of that was on Calvary's cross, and that opened the door for you and I to have a relationship with God, which is what he goes on to talk about in verse 2. He says, for you've granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's talk about this subject for a minute. Where is eternal life found? And I don't know that I could think of a more relevant or important subject than this one. I mean, this this topic of eternal life is something that is endlessly fascinating. It captivates all of our attention. For as long as people have been on the planet, they've wanted to know, is there life beyond the grave? And if so, how do you obtain it? On the topic of death, it seems like everybody has an opinion. I've, always, I've often found humor in what Woody Allen said about death. He said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, Maybe you would resonate with that. And then it was just about a, a week or so ago, maybe even a little less than that, that I was reading through the paper and I stumbled upon this article wherein Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, you know, I'll be back. He was talking about his thoughts on the afterlife. And I thought, oh, that's curious. Let's see what Arnold thinks about heaven. And he said this, and I quote, heaven, it's just a fantasy. What happens when we die? Nothing. You're six feet under. Anyone that tells you something else is a liar. And so Arnold obviously doesn't think that he'll be back. But we all have our own thoughts and opinions about the afterlife, about eternal life, if you will. A recent survey put out by the Barna Group, if you've heard of them, it revealed that while a majority of Americans have kind of drifted from our traditional Judeo-Christian roots and, and morals and foundations, while we've kind of become more secular in our thinking, we've retained as a culture, as a people, our belief in life after death. 
More than 80% of those surveyed said they believed in eternal life. And more than seven out of 10 said they believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell. Now, at that point, when the question was posed, how do you get to heaven? That's where the opinions began to diverge greatly, as you might imagine. Many of those who were questioned said that to get to heaven, you need to keep the Ten Commandments. Others said, you just need to be a good person, a popular opinion. And then there were those who say, it doesn't matter what you do or how you live because God is a God of love and he loves everybody and he won't let anyone perish. So how are we to navigate this minefield of, of responses on this weighty and important topic of eternal life? Well, I think it would be wise for us to consider Jesus' thoughts about eternal life and where to find it. And he shares them here. After all, he lived a singularly unique life. And so what he said about this topic carries weight, as it does with all the subjects that he spoke on. And when we look at what Jesus had to say about eternal life, we note that somewhat surprisingly, he doesn't say that you obtain eternal life by keeping the commandments. We might have expected that. He doesn't say anything about being good, but instead he focuses on one thing. He says, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So really, it comes down to this one central and key component, knowing the one true God. And I love the fact that Jesus distinguishes the God of heaven, his Father, from all the pantheon of gods that litter our culture and society. He specifically says it comes from knowing the one true God. Now, perhaps some of you at this point are thinking, well, how do we know the God of the Bible is the one true God? I mean, there are lots of options out there, right? So how can we know it's really him? And the answer is God can be known because he's made himself knowable. God has revealed himself in a myriad of ways, but I want to highlight just a couple of them for your consideration this evening. In fact, I'll note three different ways that God has made himself known. known. Number one, he's revealed himself in a general way through creation. We call this general revelation. And Paul talks about it in Romans chapter one, how ever since the creation of the world, God has made himself evident to all people. This is Romans 1, 19 and 20. And I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. It says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. The psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He has to declare it to his own heart because the weight of the evidence stands in opposition to that conclusion. Look around. This world is glorious. It didn't just happen. It didn't just come into being. You don't get intelligence from non-intelligence. You don't get life from non-life. You don't get something from nothing. You don't get complexity from, from, from things that are not complex. And so we can discern certain things about God and his nature through creation. For instance, we get to know that he's really big. <laughs> 
I mean, I think the, the, the universe, I don't even want to quote this because I'm doing it off the top of my head now, but it's really, really, really big, right? Like if you, if you left earth and, and, and set out for the edge of the universe and you were traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 19 billion years to get there. And the Bible says these are but the fringes of his glory. And so we know that he's big, but we also know that he's, he's creative. Have you ever seen a sunset? How artistic is God? We can also discern that he is good. There's beauty in nature. And, and so he's a God who appreciates beauty. And yet, while creation reveals certain things about God, it also has its limitations. There are other big, important questions that we can't arrive at a conclusion from just by looking at creation. Questions like, where did we come from? Why are we here? And where is this whole thing headed? And God knew that, which is why he's not only given us general revelation in creation, but he's also given us specific or special revelation through his word. Scripture is sometimes referred to as special revelation. And when you open this book, your picture, your understanding of who God is, it becomes clearer and fuller and deeper. You see, the word of God is where he reveals his character and his nature. It's where we learn his name. He is the great I am. It's where we learn his heart and his nature and his plan. It's where we learn what he wants from us and why we're here and where we're headed. And yet, as incredible as this revelation of God is, it's glorious and it's perfect and it's pure and it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's a gift from heaven, but it's incomplete. You can't fully understand or know who God is only from Scripture or only from creation. You see, in order to really know who God is, you have to see him in his son. Jesus is the final and perfect revelation of God. And we can know who God is and what God's like because he came down from heaven, he put on flesh and bones, and he walked a mile in our shoes, as it were. For 33 and a half years, he lived as a man. You remember that memorable scene in John 14 when one of the disciples, it was Philip, asked Jesus, oh, would you just show us the Father? It was, it was a companion to that request that Moses made in Exodus 33. Lord, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to see you. And so Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus' response is so telling. In John 14, 9, he said, don't you know me, Philip? I've been with you this long, and, and yet you haven't discerned it yet? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus makes an absolute claim of equality with God the Father in this moment. He says, Philip, look into my eyes. You're beholding the face of God. When you hear my voice, you're hearing the heart of heaven. Every time Jesus reached out and touched a broken life and made it whole, he was giving us a window into the very heart of the heavenly scene. To know Jesus is to know God. So for all your questions, what is God like? What is his, what is his heart? What does he want? What is he, his will for my life, his plan? You look at Jesus. Jesus reveals the heart of the Father. And so the question that we need to consider tonight is, do you know him? This is really the only question that matters. 
It's a question upon which the door of every person's eternal destiny will ultimately swing. According to Jesus, going to heaven has nothing to do with how good you are or how many of the commandments you keep or how often you come to church or how many Bible verses you know or anything like that. It comes down to whether or not you know God through his son, Jesus. In one of the more sobering passages of Scripture that you'll ever read, Jesus warned that on the last day there will be many who point to their spiritual resume and they say, Lord, look at everything I've done for you and how I ministered and I cast out demons and I performed miracles. And Jesus will respond to them, I'm sorry, I never knew you. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. So what does it mean to know the Lord, right? This is, this is a pressing question. And after all, there are different degrees of knowledge. You can know things in a shallow, kind of superficial way. You can know things secondhand by hearsay. You can know about someone, and then you can know someone well. For instance, in Genesis chapter 4, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and then she conceived and bore a son. Now, when you know someone so well that they get pregnant as a result of knowing you, you know them quite well. I think you'll agree with me. On the flip side of the coin, you can know all sorts of facts and things about someone without even truly knowing them. I mean, some of your guys' knowledge on things like pop culture or the things you know about like celebrities or some of you guys, let's talk to the guys. Some of the things that you know about the players on your fantasy football team, it's like staggering the depth of knowledge you have about these guys that, that are good at on the, on the, on the, the, uh, the field or the gridiron or whatever. And it's amazing how much we can know about somebody without actually knowing them, right? You see, you don't get to heaven by knowing all the right answers or by passing a test. It's not like St. Peter's going to be standing at the pearly gates with a scantron and a number two pencil. Let's see how you do. Oh, good, you passed, you know. Let's not forget that even the demons, they know God and they know who he is and they have, in a sense, great theology. They know who Jesus is, but none of them are going to heaven. So this is obviously a different kind of knowledge that leads to eternal life. And when you look at the word in the Greek, it's the Greek word gnosko. And it speaks of, and you might want to jot this down, it speaks of a personal, growing, intimate, experiential knowledge. Let me say that again for those of you who are jotting this down. The word for know in Greek is gnosko, and it speaks of a personal, growing, intimate, experiential knowledge. It can't be handed down. It's not something you receive from your parents. It can't be an intellectual thing. It needs to be personal. It needs to be experiential. And it needs to be something that grows with time. I love this verse from Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. Let's read it together out loud. So let us press on to know the Lord. The idea here embedded within the words of the ancient prophet is that in our walk with God, we're to be pressing on, pushing deeper, 
going higher, further, and longer. It's something that begins the moment you get saved, but will carry you through the rest of this life. And it doesn't end when you get to heaven, but for the rest of eternity, we're going to be continuing to grow in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. You see, since God is infinite, all of his attributes are infinite. And after a hundred million, billion, gazillion years, we're still just going to be scratching the surface of who he is, the multifaceted dimensions of his heart and character and love and grace. There is always more of him to know and experience. And so if you've been walking with the Lord for 20 years, you ought to know him better now than you did 20 years ago. This is the adventure of walking by faith. And so Jesus says, how do we get to heaven? It comes through knowing personally, intimately, experientially, and in a growing way, knowing the Lord. Now he goes on in verse 4. He says, I've brought you the glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. The work is finished. So now he's talking about how he has brought the the Father glory. And he notes here, I was sent to this earth on a specific mission for a specific purpose. You gave me a work to do. Even as a child, Jesus was aware of the fact that God sent him here for a purpose. You remember that story when he was 12 years old and his parents took him to Jerusalem and I guess they were in a caravan and so they all took off and Mary assumed he was with Joseph and Joseph assumed he was with Mary. You ever done this, parents? Not their proudest moment as parents. They take off and they head for, for Galilee and, and Jesus is not with either of them and, and so he's a number of days missing and they finally find him there in the temple courts. And do you remember what he said to them when they finally caught up with him? And Mary's like, oh Jesus, you had us worried sick. Why, did you, why didn't you come with us? And he said, oh, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? And he wasn't talking there about Joseph, was he? He was already aware and cognizant of the fact that his heavenly father had a work that he had preordained for Jesus to complete. And he was walking in that path. So what is the work that Jesus came to accomplish? Well, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 gives us some real insight into this, and I'd love it if we could read this out loud because I believe this speaks directly to the work that Jesus came to accomplish. It says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. Amen. I heard a few amens, but let's say it again because I want everyone in here to praise the Lord after this one. Let's read it out loud. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. Come on. Come on, somebody. Jesus came to destroy the devil's works. That is good news for every person in this room. How did he do that? How did Jesus destroy the devil's works. And for, the ma- for that matter, what is the devil's work? Well, we learn in John 10 that he comes to rob, to kill, and to destroy. And he's been doing a pretty good job of that. If you want to know what the devil's work is, just open the newspaper or look out your window or step outside of your front door. 
The work of sin, the fallout, the collateral damage from mankind's rebellion against God is everything that we see. It is the undoing of God's plan for humanity. It's why there's death and sorrow and suffering and cancer and sickness and disease and wars and famines and earthquakes and everything else. It all stems from sin. And that is the devil's work. So Jesus comes down from heaven to undo, to reverse the curse. And his whole ministry, you know what it is? It's, it's like a window into God's original plan and design and intent for humanity. It's a bringing back to the garden. You see, paradise was lost in a garden. And God says, this was my plan, the garden, that you would flourish, that you would walk with me in the cool of the day. And so Jesus comes down, and every blind eye that he opens, every deaf ear that he looses, every leper that he cleanses, every dead life that he raises, is Jesus saying, this is what I had in mind. This was the, the plan from the beginning. Death was an interruption to God's plan, which is why I came. And he was giving us a window into the kingdom. And the kingdom is God's heart. It's God's will, which is why our prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus, he brings heaven down to earth and he releases it, not just through his works, but also with his words. And he diffuses the kingdom. Everywhere he goes, he releases the kingdom. And hearts are touched. Lives are transformed. The dead are raised. The sick are healed. Those who are oppressed by demons are delivered. And that's the plan of God. Salvation, wholeness, healing, deliverance, freedom, life abundantly. Jesus reverses in all of these ways the works of the devil. But it wasn't finished yet. It wasn't finished until those six hours on Calvary. When Jesus hung on the cross and paid for the sins of the world in accordance with God's eternal plan, from, from eternity past, this was always God's plan for humanity. And what did Jesus cry out with his final breath, or next to it? He said, it is finished. The work is finished. The end is written. I love this thought. What was finished on the cross? Not only the work that the Father had sent him to do, also the debt that you owed. You had accrued a debt to God because of your sin. The wages, if you will, of sin is death, the Bible declares. But the debt that you owed, that was paid in full. It was finished. So too was death's grip on us. The stranglehold of fear, it was loosed. It was finished at Calvary's cross. Can somebody say amen? And there's something else that was finished at the cross. The devil himself. The devil was defeated at Calvary. You see, through the work of the cross, the devil's power in your life has been broken Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Jesus says, I've glorified you. And I love how once again, he's speaking in the past tense about a future work because it was as good as done. He hadn't been to the cross yet, but he knew he would go through it because it was the Father's will and the Father's plan. And so he concludes this portion, and this is all we have time for tonight. 
He concludes this portion of his prayer by saying, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He's saying, bring me back. Oh, Lord. He's saying, I can't wait to be reunited in your glorious presence. And you have to think about it. This statement is absolutely staggering in its implications. Jesus is saying, I want you to return to me the glory I had with you prior to the existence of the world. He's claiming here to be eternal, to be pre-existent. He's saying, my story didn't begin at the crib in Bethlehem. It began before time itself even existed. You know, there's that scripture that we like to reference around Christmas time. Isaiah chapter, is it nine, verse six? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And we'll call his name Emmanuel and wonderful counselor and, and all the rest. And, and we always like to, to dwell on the aspect of that verse that says a son is given. And from earth's vantage point, that's the gift of heaven to us. That a child is born, rather. Sorry, I got that backwards. A child is born. But from heaven's vantage point, the child that was born on earth was also the son who was given. <clears throat> and so, in the greatest act of condescension this world has ever seen, God stepped down into his own creation to live as a man. And even though Jesus never stopped being God, not even for an instant. He was fully God and fully man. He wasn't half God, half man. He was 100% God and 100% man. You say, well, 100% plus 100% equals 200%. So how does that work? And I, math is not my subject. I'm a Bible preacher, and the Bible says that he was fully God and fully man. So you can figure out the math on your own. You now he, in becoming a man temporarily set aside certain aspects of his divine nature so he could fully embrace what it means to be human. In other words, he lived with self-imposed limitations. He was very God of very God, but his glory was veiled to the point where you outwardly, if you saw Jesus, you wouldn't be able to tell him apart from his disciples. There was nothing outwardly that would attract you to him. Does that make sense? So he didn't like hover two feet off the ground at all times. It wasn't like, which one's Jesus? Oh, he's unmistakable. He's the guy with the halo. He's the one whose face shines and radiates the glory of heaven. No, he looked like a normal human being. Yet there was that one instance, though, in Matthew's gospel. I think it's chapter 17, where he takes with him Peter, James, and John to the top of this mountain. And there in his presence, he's transfigured before them. And Matthew says that his, his face began to shine like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. It's as though in that moment, for a brief instant, who he was on the inside was allowed to make its way to the outside and manifest in that way. And he appeared in this resplendent way. Now, the real miracle, if you will, wasn't that Jesus shined in that moment before the eyes of these men for a few fleeting moments. The real miracle is that he was able to keep that hidden the rest of the time. Do you know what I'm talking about? But in this prayer, Jesus is saying, I'm ready, Father, ready to return to the glory that I shared with you before the world began. 
So did the father answer Jesus' request? And the answer, of course, is yes, he did. How do we know? Because the tomb is empty. Praise the Lord. You see, three days after he went to the cross and glorified the Father through his obedience and his sacrificial death, God raised him from the dead because it wasn't possible that death could hold him. Jesus has been glorified. In fact, if you want to know what he's like now, just flip to the end of this book and read about him in the book of Revelation. And there we're given a sneak preview of coming attractions. And we get to see Jesus high and lifted up, radiating the glory of God. He is the very centerpiece of heaven itself, and he sits on a throne, and all of heaven, it, it is built around him. It centers its focus on him, and it falls before him, and it worships him day and night, saying, well, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus is glorified, and one day soon, we're all going to stand before him, and on that day, He's not going to ask you whether or not you attended Maranatha Chapel. He's not going to ask you whether or not you fell asleep during Pastor Daniel's sermons. I am watching. <laughs> Just kidding. He's not going to ask you, did your parent, did you, were you baptized? Any of these things. He's going to say, do you know my son? And perhaps more importantly, does he know you? Do you know the Lord? This is eternal life, to know God, which means eternal life isn't some future thing that we have to wait for. It's something that you can enter into and begin to experience right here and right now. And then when you pass through the curtain of eternity, it will just carry on through the rest of the ages. And you don't, amen, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. This is the hope of every believer. You don't have to spend your life wondering because I can see the question mark above some of your heads. You're like, I hope so. I mean, I, I said a sinner's prayer. I don't know. I mean, I could be more holy. I could know him better. I should read my Bible more often. Like, I don't know. Do I know him? Listen, 1 John 5, 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe, listen, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. The Lord doesn't want you living in constant fear. He doesn't want you anxiety-ridden. He doesn't want you wrestling and questioning and doubting and Till the day of your last breath, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And you can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have the gift of life, that your last breath on earth will be followed by your first breath in heaven, that you'll be forgiven of your sins, that the Holy Spirit has come and, and taken up residence within your heart. You can begin to walk in the abundant life that Jesus spoke of. You can experience this gift of eternal life, not just in the, the then and there, but in the here and now. It's something he wants you to walk in and experience and grow in for all of the ages to come. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for this incredible gift called eternal life. And I do pray in this moment for any in here who would say, I do believe, but I don't know that I've ever 
come to that moment of decision. Or maybe you've wandered and you need to come back to the Lord. And I would be remiss if I didn't close our service by giving you an opportunity to do that tonight. King Jesus is here. He is alive. He is risen. He is seated on the throne in heaven. He is glorified. He is the coming king. His kingdom is going to manifest and establish itself here on earth. And I believe he's coming back soon. And the only thing that matters tonight is, do you know him and does he know you? Not in a shallow, superficial way, but in a deep, meaningful way intimate, personal, growing, and experiential way? Do you know that you know that you know? Because John says you can. I write these things to you that believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know. Not that you might hope, not that you might think, not that you might feel, but that you might know that you have eternal life. And if you want Jesus to come into your heart, he stands at the door and he knocks. And if you'll open the door, if you'll invite him in, then he will come into your life and he'll change you from the inside out. And you'll know you're changed because you'll have new desires. You'll have new appetites. You'll have the mind of Christ. You'll be moved and compelled to love those around you. It'll be a foreign, alien thing to you because it's a divine, supernatural love. It's not an earthly love. It's some, a love that is deposited in your heart from heaven itself. If that's the desire of your heart, then I'm going to invite you on the count of three to raise your hand. You say, why do I have to raise my hand because oftentimes I find in my own life when I do on the outside what I am thinking or feeling on the inside it has a way of cementing it for myself and making it real so on the count of three if you want forgiveness if you want Jesus if you want life you raise your hand one two three raise your hand raise it up high praise the Lord thank you Jesus 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 we love you Lord and there are many who are responding to the voice of the Holy Spirit tonight. Your life will never be the same. And I'm just going to lead you in a simple prayer, a childlike prayer of dependence and trust. And you can repeat this prayer after me, or you can pray your own prayer if you want and put it into your own words. But I'll model it for you and, and lead you into this prayer of surrender. And if you'll just pray this and mean it from the bottom of your heart, then everything I've just described will come true for you. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and taking my place, bearing my sin and carrying my cross. I receive the gift of salvation. By grace, through faith in you. Please give me your Holy Spirit and write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.